Christ. Okay, Luke chapter 9. If you haven't figured out already who we're talking about this morning, we're talking about Jesus. As we look to these truths, uh, these doctrinal components that we want to, to remain faithful to and want to keep forefront and, and the pillars of the truth that we want to highlight. We highlight the scriptures. We highlight God in his triuneness, his three-in-oneness, as he is God the Father and now God the Son. A couple weeks, uh, Jordan will take us through God the Spirit. But here, looking at this passage, uh, verses 18 to 22, is where we will look. Uh, particularly what Jesus is conveying to his disciples about who he is. You know, Jesus was uh, a master of mystery as he proclaimed himself because he, he only gave enough for people to almost be intrigued. Like, did, did you just say, that, did I hear you correctly? It's almost as if he had a smirk the whole time like in the twinkle in his eye kind of thing. Because those that the Father was drawing, they're the ones that caught it. They're the ones that recognized he just said he can forgive sins. And they would, they would highlight that. Well, we get to, and, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this component, this interaction with Jesus and his disciples, because Jesus brings the question of himself to a personal a personal uh, awareness that we all, every one of us, everybody that hears the name of Jesus has to come to a conclusion about who he is and really make a judgment call about who he is. And that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Verse 18. Now it happened that he was, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them, charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Lord, we ask for the Spirit's help and illumination to, to know Jesus and to have the glories. And powerful name of Jesus, be everything and settle everything and be, be our, our, our rock and our fortress. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We like superheroes, don't we? Do you know the, the majority of the highest grossing movies of all time are about superheroes? and otherworldly components that come 
and into our humanity and rescue us from it. Highest grossing movie of all time is Avatar. Here, a a man who is emotionally broken, a vet who is emotionally broken, he's paralyzed, so he's physically broken, but he finds life through another culture and meeting new beings on another planet. So, look, something outside of our world comes to our world to save us from the misery of our world. That's the gospel story. And that's what superheroes do. And they come, and no matter how many times the Academy of Performing Arts wants to give uh, their awards to movies that we've never heard of, people's pocketbook says, I want to hear a story about something greater than I am that'll, that'll give me hope that can rescue me from me from my misery and my brokenness, my emotional and physical, spiritual brokenness. The popularity of these stories is due to our deep understanding that we can't fix ourselves. Left up to ourselves, we're frustrated endlessly because we just can't get it right. We need an otherworldly being with power beyond our own to rescue us from who we are. Culture continues to try to find ways to convince us that our main problem is really outside of ourselves, and we just have to look deeper inside of ourselves to find the answer. But the Scripture tells us that it's the opposite. The main problem with ourselves is not something on the outside, it's something on the inside. And I need something outside of myself. I need an alien righteousness to come and rescue me from my attempts to be right with God and be accepted by Him. My fascination with superhero stories, and I'm, I'm, I'm a superhero fan. I'm preferential to the MCU. I like those stories. I have fun watching the movies. But our, our fascination with them reveals that we understand that our main issue is what's on the inside. And we need outside help. Superheroes combine power and humanity. Either they're superhuman, Captain America. They are half-human, Star-Lord. Or they are other human, Thor, Superman, I'll throw in DC. When Jesus asked his disciples what the word on the street was about about him, concerning him, they described people who had the combination that they saw of power and humanity. They talk about John the Baptist, talk about Elijah, one of the prophets of old has risen. They see, the world sees something other than-ness of Jesus, but they can't quite locate what, what's going on. He's, Jesus is journeying with his disciples, and he's been describing to his disciples who he is. And Peter's answer shows that he believed Jesus to be the Messiah who God promised to accomplish the impossible for man. Jesus' explanation of his work is a lesson on his person. He is. God, man. He was not superhuman. He was not half human, nor was he other human. He was fully human and fully divine. He was Jesus. They were both fully true, completely true, all at the same time. Now, why do we want to understand this? We understand Jesus as fully, and our understanding of Jesus as fully human and fully divine leads to our confessing, our agreeing, yes, he is who he is, and directs us in our worship. 
to exalt him, to say he, he is worthy and he deserves our lives, he deserves our worship. Now, the first uh, question that Jesus goes to his disciples, he's, he's asking about the surrounding summary. What, what's going on and how do people describe me? And the, the crowds were already attributing resurrection power to Jesus. John the Baptist had been beheaded by this time. And they said, oh, it's John the Baptist who's come back from life. It's Elijah who was used to raise the dead. Now, there, the crowds are seeing this, but there's also... There's also the other perspective that when Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth, he can't do any mighty work there because they didn't believe he was really divine. So you got people looking at Jesus saying, there's got to be something other human than he, he's got too much power. But his hometown says, it's just Jesus, come on. He's got power? He's just a human. We've been knowing him since birth. And there, is the, there are the two opinions that will always be found wherever there's human beings breathing. Who is Jesus? There have always been disputes about either Jesus' full divinity or his full humanity. You know, today, there are few that, that will argue that Jesus existed. Pretty much everybody, yeah, he existed. Argument today is based on really, was he really God? Was he really fully divine? Even uh, in culture, but sometimes this, this goes to believers and unbelievers. We seem to divide Jesus in the two because we can't quite conceptualize how he's both. So we, we try to appreciate his unity as the God-man, but, but we end up dividing him. Unbelievers, we find, can focus more on Jesus' humanity, but don't believe he had the power to really deal with who we are. So... Culture looks to Jesus to motivate and inspire social work among the poor and the oppressed. That's right and true and good. But that's not all Jesus came to do. He just didn't come to feed a bunch of people. He was more than that. But unbelievers will look on that and say, he was just a great human. And we need to be more like Jesus in our humanness. Now, believers, we are to highlight Jesus' divinity. And it's right and good and true for us to say he is the power. But you know what happens all too often in believers' lives? His humanity doesn't show up in our day-to-day -day lives that we really think he can deliver us from the, the goofy, weird routines that we just can't get over. The sin that plagues us and we still struggle. So believers, we have a Jesus that's really powerful but when you look at our lives, we question, is he really powerful to do something in me? He's got power for everybody else, but he's, he's doing it in me. So our question, Jesus is asking us, how do we understand him? How do we understand his full divinity and his full humanity? But there comes a time in, in Jesus telling with his disciples, all right, that's what everybody else says. What do you say? You see this uh, in raising teenagers. There's, a, there's a, a, a transition of faith, ownership that happens in a teenager's life. As, as the child is growing up in your home and you're, you're uh, confessing Christ and they are confessing Christ and they are genuine believers, there, there's the external motivation of we're a family that loves the Lord. For me and my house, 
We serve the Lord. Absolutely, we do that. We raise up our children to do that. But in that teenage years, and for some it happens differently, but that 16, 17, 18, I've, I've watched this happen in my own house, but my years in youth ministry, you watch this ownership of faith develop to where Jesus is coming to every one of those teenagers and saying, who do you say that I am? I know what your parents say. You know what your parents say, but who do you say? See, in all those ways, Jesus comes to every single one of us. And hear the tender but powerful question, who do you say that I am? He brings everyone who hears about him to a personal proclamation, a personal determination. And he doesn't leave room for us to simply think of him as just a great human being or a great human teacher. He goes deep with us. So we will go deep with him. His question of who do you say I am is an invitation to experience his fullness as God. But also we'll see he sympathizes with us in our humanity because he's fully man. Jesus' question to get it to the disciples is a question about the heart. And Jesus calls to the heart. He goes after our hearts He wants to know who his disciples own him to be, and he asks that question to us. When Jesus goes after our our hearts, it's no neutral encounter. It's not just a rhetorical question. Hmm. It's not some private, well, that's just between God and me. I keep that to myself. When Jesus engages our hearts, he's looking for an answer. He's expecting an answer, and maybe we're caught... Maybe when Jesus asked the question, it's like, well, I've been daydreaming. I have no idea who you are, and I don't remember the question. What's the question? Who are you? But he still comes. There are no neutral encounters with Jesus. He's looking for an answer. He's calling us to judge who he is. And the judgment we make is one of faith in his person and his work. That's what he's going to reveal in verse uh, 22. His question, it doesn't leave room for neutrality. Very helpful thought from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone, anyone saying the real foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He calls everybody to give an account of their belief in him. And Peter's response, precious, precious words. And oh man, I, one day I'll ask Peter what this felt like. What was that moment where you said in the stillness, and Peter's going to, we know from his life in the, the Gospels, he's, he's ready to talk. He's a talker. Even if he's saying the wrong thing, he's a talker. Right after this, another account in Mark, he's like, you said you're going to die. Jesus, I need to rebuke you right now. 
because you're not going to die. You don't understand this. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Don't you, don't you, Simon, don't you mean Simon? Satan? It's a little harsh. So Peter's ready to talk, right? He's ready to say something. But this time, he says beautiful words. The Christ of God. Jesus also tells him in this moment, different account, hey, you didn't figure that out on your own. The Father lets you know. You're blessed because the Father lets you know who I am and to figure that out and give you those confessing words. The word Christ is equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, we see these pictures of three roles that were anointed. First, kings were anointed. They were anointed to lead and have everybody follow them. And then they were, they were anointed valiant and courageous and protective leaders. And then prophets were anointed. Prophets were known as, as those who would speak to the people for God. They would be God's mouthpiece. And the priests were also anointed. And the priests were anointed as mediators. They would stand on that one place on earth at the temple, the altar of sacrifice, in between a God who was represented in the Holy of Holies, in the back of the tabernacle, and in the temple. They, the, the holy presence of God that no sinful being could be a part of or around and live altar of sacrifice and then God's people on the other side. They were mediators in between the two offering those sacrifices. Now when Peter says you are the Christ of God, he's saying you are the anointed king. You are the anointed prophet. You are the anointed priest. Now what Jesus is getting ready to explain to them is that this priest is not going to offer a sacrifice. He's going to give himself as that sacrifice. When Peter says that Jesus is Christ, he's saying that Jesus is everything. He's everything that we are. But he's also declaring a personal trust in Jesus in those roles over his own life. So, in essence, he's saying, you are my king from my God. You are my anointed prophet. You are my priest. You are my mediator to stand between God and sinful me. And this comes together in a complexity about who Jesus is as fully God and fully man. But he is, he's constituted. He is words. Can't describe it. He's Jesus. That's the best way to get at this. And we see this picture of this constituted complexity about who Jesus is in John 1 and Philippians 2. In John 1, the Apostle John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So he is eternally God. Jesus didn't, didn't automatically, he didn't become a person at his birth from Mary. He was already eternally existent with the Father. And then in verse 14 in John 1, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's eternally God. But yet He comes stooping down. We see that in the picture of when He washes the disciples' feet in John 13. He takes off his outer garment, gets a towel around his waist, and washes his disciples' feet. 
what he, that's a picture of what he did in coming to us. He took off his glory, so to speak. And that's what Paul says in Philippians 2 about emptying himself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was found in human form, and this king of all glory humbled himself. You know what it tells us about God? God's very humble. God the Father is very humble. God the Holy Spirit is very humble. And we see that humility personified in Jesus' humility. We have a humble God. That's why he calls us to experience. That's why he calls us to humble ourselves and honor him and love him. So he is uh, fully God. We see verse 20, well, verse 21, let me explain. I strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one. It's, it's interesting how Jesus does this through the gospel accounts. He heals somebody. It's like, hey, don't tell anybody this. What? This is miraculous. I think it's two things. One, he wanted the, the personal component to still be there, but he also didn't want people to draw the wrong conclusions and fill in the, wrong, fill in the blanks wrongly about him and his disciples, Peter's getting ready to do that. But he says, just wait, because I'm not the type of king that you want to rescue you. I'm the type of king that's going to die for you. Nobody... If somebody shows up to the scene, like, uh, I'm running for president so I can die while I'm in office. You going to vote for that person? Uh, I don't think so. It doesn't make sense. So, look, we have all these, we have a couple thousand years to be able to consider this story and look at it and see how what other people have talked about. Put real time on the ground right here. We're confused too. But he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's some heavy stuff. But Jesus reveals himself, the Son of Man component. They, they were very good Jews and they, learned, they knew that phrase from Daniel chapter 7 because that was the long-awaited, uh, we want to see this Son of Man uh, Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, you know what I believe Daniel saw? He saw in heaven when Jesus ascended and got to the Father. I believe that's what this describes. He's looking into this vision, into the future, of how Jesus would be crowned king forevermore in heaven after he was raised. But this Son of Man, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that Son of Man. Now, now we usually see the term Son of Man, and we equate that with, well, this, Jesus is like me. But it's the opposite. Son of man means, no, he's actually God. 
Because he's got all authority and all dominion. He's the king of all glory. He's got authority that he showed in his life over sickness with all the people he healed coming to them and and those that were rushing through a crowd to touch him and and some would just touch even the fringe of of his robe at the bottom and they were healed. And he wanted to heal. He has authority in his his life. We see he's got authority over the spirits, authority over the spirit realm. How many people he delivered from spiritual oppression and spiritual bondage. Everybody obeyed Jesus. Even the demons obeyed Jesus. He is the king to be obeyed. Glorious of all glories. He has authority over sin. Remember in the story, uh, there's uh, four friends have this paralyzed friend, and they, they actually dig through the, the roofs back there. were like two feet thick of dirt because it just, people still kind of do that too. There's some science involved with that. I'm not sure we can ask Taylor afterwards. But when, when you, they dug through, and they put their friend down in front of Jesus. Now this time, he didn't say, you're healed. He said, your sins are forgiven. Going. And they're like, hold on a second. And the crowd knew, Pharisees especially, um, only God has authority to forgive sins. Jesus said, yep. And they start putting pieces together. Some of them were in awe. Some of them were in anger because he threatened their way of life and their own self-righteousness. But he points to this man's greatest need and he says, I am God over your greatest need, and that's the forgiveness of your sins. How marvelous. How beautiful. And as that priest, he offers himself as fully God for the sacrifice of sins. Look, he needed to be God in order to pay for all of our sins. Simply put, the person can die for another person. It's one for one. But for the spiritual need, Jesus needed to be God to bear the weight of our sins. Hebrews 9:26, the second half of that verse says, "But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." Oh, Hebrews 9 and 10, beautiful extrapolation of God Jesus as fully God and fully man as the sacrifice for our sins. But being fully man, look, he is suffering. He is rejected. He's put to death. He had to be fully man to die. God can't die. So he needs to take on the form of a man in order to die. But as a man, he is our representative before God and that that able sacrifice for all those who would call on him for salvation and say, save me from my sin. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Check that. God is able to sympathize with us. There is no God of any human imagination that would ever sympathize with his people. Every, every God that man comes up with and every culture invents is a God that is way far off that does not come unless we do enough to gain his attention, 
to bring him close. And maybe as he's passing by, she, he or she will help us out. But God says, I've come to be with you so you can understand me. This is miraculous. This, this is God. Look, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows. He knows the, the temptation moment to believe something other than what God says. And that's all of our temptation. Every temptation that comes to us is a temptation to find our everything, find our our satisfaction, our acceptance, our significance and longings fulfilled by something outside of what God says will provide it. It's just we're tempted to live for ourselves and not live for Jesus. He knows that and he conquered it so he can show up. And he does show up in our everyday lives and he makes us more and more like him so we can say no to that temptation as well. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what's marvelous about looking at Jesus' life is that he waited on the Lord. And I've heard it said like this and it's very true. He used his power to not use his power while he was a man while he was existing on the earth. So he, he used his power to not be omnipresent. He used his power to not be omniscient. So sometimes he, he was the prophet role. He said, all right, you're going to go over there. You're going to find a colt tide, get it. And, oh, these guys are going to ask you, what are you doing? Just say, your master need, has use of it, just, and they'll let you go. It happened. He absolutely predicted the future in that moment. But he... He put himself so much into our world that he waited for God to give him mercy and grace in his time of need. Isn't that amazing? Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's asking, he's at the throne. I need mercy, I need grace. I I, I need the promise that you're going to be with me through this. He does that. Now, look, verse 28 in Luke 9. The story of the transfiguration, that's, that's, I believe, how Jesus exists now. In his glorified state, in his glorified body, he shines through. And everything about him, that, that unapproachable light that Paul told Timothy that God dwells in, that pierced through. In that moment, he said, okay, I'm going to let uh, Peter, John, and James He brought those three up to the mount with him. I'm going to let them see who I really am. Then he tells them, hey, uh, keep this to yourselves. Because you don't quite understand it right now, but when I'm raised, then you'll understand it. And then the the light goes on. They realize, oh, this is what he meant. This is what he talked about. And looking at this God and man not a paradox and it's, it's not juxt, juxtaposition it's it's he's he's god and he's man gregory of nazianzus in the 300s wrote this jesus was baptized as man but he remitted sins as god he was tempted as man but he conquered as god he hungered but he fed thousands he thirsted but he cried if anyone thirsts let him come unto me and drink he was wearied but he is, the re- 
He is the rest of them that are weary and heavy laden. He was heavy with sleep, but he walked lightly over the sea. He prays, but he hears prayer. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He asks where Lazarus was laid, for he was a man, but he raises Lazarus, for he was God. He is sold for a cheap 30 pieces of silver, but he redeems the world at the great price of his own blood. As a sheep, he is led to the slaughter, but he is the shepherd of Israel and now of the whole world. As a lamb, he is silent, yet he is the word. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to the tree, but, but by the tree of life, he restores us. He dies, but he gives life. And by his death, destroys death. He's buried, but he rises again. Church, we don't have a dormant Savior. We have a risen Savior. We have Jesus who is alive now, and he intercedes for us before the Father's throne. He is for us, and he's inclined toward us, and he fulfilled his promise on that third day. He rose. So whatever we're looking at in our lives, we can say, God, you have resurrection power for me to touch that dead thing and make it alive. For, for those in our lives and the situations and people that we think, God, will, will it ever change? Yes, because he rose. He rose from the dead. So we have joy in the midst of darkness. We have light in the midst of darkness. We have love in the midst of sorrow. We have, we have an expectation that he will return for us and cause all of those tears to cease because he loves us. He came to us as one of us to bring us into the fellowship that he is as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's time to rejoice. Let's stand up and let's sing.